Well, it is such a privilege to be with you in this way on this very special COP26 Sunday as world leaders gather in Glasgow to discuss literally the future of our planet. Wherever you're watching this, and uh, whether you're participating online or uh, in the gathered church service, thank you for joining us to think and pray about climate justice. With the planet warming, uh, resulting in floods and famines and fires, all the terrible things we so often see in our newspapers, and these things particularly afflicting the poorest people in our world, this really matters. Some people, of course, say that uh, environmental concern has got very little to do with Christianity. In fact, um, just the advertising for this event uh, has got people in touch with me on social media and so on, uh, accusing me of all kinds of things. They've accused me of being woke, uh, of just getting on some environmental bandwagon, of deviating from scripture, and even of having brought into some great global conspiracy. I'm sure you've experienced similar things too. One person even asked me outright, what on earth climate justice has got to do with the gospel? <laughs> and I replied, everything, absolutely everything. This isn't just about, um, you know, the way we travel, the way we shop, uh, the way we do or don't recycle. Those things matter. And this isn't just for zealous young Extinction Rebellion activists and ageing tree huggers and David Attenborough fans. This is for all of us and especially for us as Christians. I'm going to explain why. This is about the way that we think, the way we pray, and the heart of our purpose as people made by the Creator God. So let's turn uh, together to the start of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. One of the first things that God asks us to do is to take care of the world that he's made. The original Hebrew word here is orbad, which means to tend the garden, to cultivate it, even to serve the land. We're not to exploit the earth, but to nurture and serve it. It's not just there to serve us, we're there to serve it. So the Christian worldview must challenge the greed of unrestricted capitalism continually. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas argued that we should never think of creation as just a one-off event with a before and after. God did it and now we've got it. Instead, Aquinas said that creation is an ongoing process. It's continuous. God has made today. He's continually renewing, remaking, sustaining his creation. And this is important. He has chosen to do so in partnership with us. He asks us to tend the garden. I remember uh, I was on a holiday at my mum's house. She lives by the beach. And there's just this stunning beach. I was down worshipping the Lord at the beauty of it all. 
and just lost in wonder, love and praise. And then I noticed behind me on the beach so much plastic and rubbish that I went home. I got our two young sons and we took bin liners and we filled uh, two bin liners each. That's six bin liners with rubbish. We, th this was part of, I felt, just being a Christian, caring for the world, tending the garden. And then I went back two days later to the same beach. There'd been a storm and all of the plastic, all of the mess had filled back up again. It was disheartening. That's why I guess as well as engaging personally, we've got to engage politically. In order to tend the garden, as we've been commanded, we must contend with human selfishness and greed, even at a structural level. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says to us, well, the Apostle Paul urges us, first of all, when we gather to worship, we should offer petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving for all those in authority over us, that all may go well with us in the land. I reckon this is probably uh, one of the most disobeyed commandments in the British church. We rarely pray for those in authority over us when we come together to worship. But in a moment like this, with the world's leaders gathering in Glasgow, in one of our nations, with so much at stake, we must surely pray that they will have wisdom beyond human wisdom and foresight beyond just human expediency and courage beyond their own personal political short-term ambition. I believe that we need as the people of God to repent for the way that we have treated the world. I'm just ashamed to acknowledge that the worst culprit of environmental destruction for most of the past three centuries has been the supposedly Christian worldview West. It is time for us to repent of our sinful exploitation of the garden that we have been commissioned to serve, to tend, to cultivate, to care for. And we also think we need to repent because, let's be honest, the real root of the problem here is not political, it's human greed. It is the heart of the human problem, as Cheston says, is the problem of the human heart. Change begins not just with the G7, but with me, with the way I shop, the way I travel, the way I care for that tiny little bit of the world with which I've been entrusted. I long for the day when every person who becomes a Christian kind of naturally as part of the package becomes a climate activist because they realise that their salvation doesn't just mean they kind of get into heaven when they die, but it affects the way they live their lives, the way they vote. They realise that they have just joined a 2,000-year-old global conspiracy, ganging up together to serve and save the planet for the glory of its creator. This really could be our greatest moment. You know, the church with its 1.4 billion members, could speak truth to power prophetically. That's why we need to petition him, to pray to him. That's why we need to obey his original commandment to tend the garden, to care for the poor 
and to fight, therefore, for climate justice. And ultimately, this for us as Christians is what it means to pray, thy kingdom come. We are asking in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus' rule and reign in every sphere of a renewed world would come to us, not just saving people out of a dying world, but saving a dying world by the power of his life, death and resurrection. Amen. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for caring about these issues. Let's make a difference. Amen. We're going to uh, spend some, just a few moments together this morning looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read in chapter 10 together. Uh, chapter 10, Luke 10, uh, Luke 10 uh, uh, verses 25 down to verse 37. Words that are very well known to many of us. A, a parable uh, about the Good Samaritan which will be known to many of us here. So let's read God's word together. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 down to verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want us just to spend a few moments together this morning thinking about this small word, mercy. Mercy. About being a people of mercy. Why? Because regardless of your political party, regardless of your thoughts on what's going on in Glasgow just now, you might think it's the best thing since sliced bread, or you might just think it's just caused loads of delays on trains and junk, uh, uh, blockages on the motorways and roads. Regardless of what you think about it, if you're a Christian, you're called to be a person of mercy. So I want to spend just a few moments just unpacking what that means and actually then how that shapes 
our day-to-day living and our day-to-day life. So this lawyer comes and asks Jesus a question. And we see that the lawyer's intentions aren't the best. They, they, he wants to put Jesus to the test. And then we see as well, and he looks to justify himself and asks a follow-up question. So he's not coming with the, the best of intentions. It's not the, the purest of questions that he's, he's asking, but it's a good question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him and, and, and says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And what's interesting is this, this lawyer who would have known the, the Old Testament, known his scriptures very, very well. He asks a question about salvation in terms of works. We see that he's not really understood grace. He doesn't really, he doesn't really get it. And, and Jesus answers this question. And in in, in Jesus' answer, what we see is actually in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the answer to salvation is the same, that it's by grace alone through faith that we are saved. That none of us should be able to boast. And that not being able to boast is an important thing. I want you to hold on to it and just park it somewhere in your mind so that you remember it, that we shouldn't be able to boast. The lawyer then responds to Jesus' follow-up question about what is written in the law by um, responding with two Old Testament verses, two uh, verses from the Old Testament. The first is called the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, words that many of us will know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for the Jews, they would have, they would have recited this twice daily. Why? So that it wasn't just fresh in their memories, but that was imprinted on their heart. This was like their mantra. This is, this is who they were. We are the people who worship the God who is one. The only God. There's no one but Him. And actually, we're to love Him with everything that we have. And the Shema was about a total surrender to God. Loving Him with everything that we have within us. And then He the lawyer comes and he, he gives a second verse from the Old Testament, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19, which is, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see Jesus put these two together elsewhere in the, in the other gospels, but the lawyer does it here as well. You love God with everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you're to love your neighbor as yourself. One way to think about it is that that actually the whole of the Old Testament is just an unpacking of these two verses. The whole of the Old Testament is about unpacking these two verses. But loving God with everything that we have and everything we are, and then looking to love our neighbor as ourself. So much so that it actually impacted how you would cut your crops. That actually the way that, you know, you couldn't just go out and cut them the way that you wanted to. God would instruct his people how to do it. Why? So that there'd be some left over for those who didn't have. It was an unpacking and a practical way of loving your neighbor as yourself. I've heard many people, and quite often it's in the charismatic wing of the church, where when they hear these words, they they talk about loving God, yes, loving others, but actually it's really important that we're able to love ourselves because if we can't love ourselves, how can we love our neighbor? And I think even in that kind of interaction, we, we just see such a problem that we have here in the West where we make everything about me, everything about us. Friends, I have no problem 
no problem at all with satisfying myself and serving and looking to get and looking for me to get my own thing and my own way. I have no problem with that. I don't need help in Norman looking after Norman's best interests. Why? Because I'm fallen and that's the way that I'm wired. And I don't think I'm alone. That actually we do know how to look after ourselves. We do know because it's just our, our, our fallen nature. We look to serve ourselves. We now live in a culture and a, a generation where we have the iPhone, the iPad, the iMac, I, I, I. It's all about me. And it's so typical of the church in the West about trying to make it about us. And it's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, stop looking at yourself, lawyer. And start looking first to God and then to those who are around you. The gospel calls for a complete reversal of the way that I am wired. That we're here to serve and to give God glory first and foremost. But then we're to love others. And we're to be there for them. So the lawyer gives Jesus these two verses. And Jesus says, yes, you've got it right. Go and do these things. Go and do them. Do this and you will live, he says in verse 28. And then in verse 29, again, we see the lawyer just with not the best of intentions. And he looks to, he looks to um, trip Jesus up again. And he asks, you know, to, to, to justify himself. Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? If it was me answer, answer, asking this to Jesus, I would probably be asking it from the, the point of view. What's the bare minimum I have to do? What is the least amount I have to care for those who are around me so that I'm still okay with the Lord? Who is my neighbor, he asks, looking to justify himself. And then Jesus tells this parable that so many of us know uh, from verses 29, uh, sorry, verse 30 down to verse 36, about this parable of the good Samaritan. Many of us will know it. Many of us grew up with it through Sunday school and have heard it being preached on. But if you don't, then Jesus is telling this parable to, to show actually that, that a neighbor isn't just someone that lives next door to you or someone who is like you. That it goes beyond that. We have this man who's making this journey. He's traveling. And on his journey, to, uh, he, he is attacked. He's beaten and he's left half dead, we read. And then two people, we read, walk past. Two people who should have. And, and when we hear about a priest and a Levite, you would think that they would be people who would practice compassion. But absolutely not. They cross the road so they don't have anything to do with it. And off they go on their journey. Maybe the priest was off to a church meeting that he needed to go and conduct. I don't know. But anyway, he crossed the road because he didn't want to tend to this beaten up man. And then we read off this Samaritan. And for us, it doesn't think, feel like much. We're not really that impressed by this Samaritan. But this teacher of the law, this lawyer, he would have been, oh man, a Samaritan stopped. Surely the priest and the Levite, you know, they are kind of religious people. They would have done it. But this Samaritan who were enemies with the Jews, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get on. It was the enemy that stopped and who had compassion and helped him. He tended to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. Then he, he lifted him and put him on his own animal. Then he walked his animal with the man on, it, on the back of the animal, took him to the inn and then paid for him to stay there. And then he would come back and he would top up the rest. Anything more that he needed to pay, he would pay. But this was meant to be someone who was an enemy of this person. Friends, True biblical compassion leads to action. True biblical compassion leads 
to action. And Jesus, in this parable, teaches us that our neighbor is not just a person who lives next door to us, who we sit beside on a Sunday morning in our own seat, in our own pew. It's not just those who are in our communities or even in our country, but it's anyone who is in need in any place. The rains in South Sudan have been relentless. Hundreds of thousands of people have now been affected by the flooding, a crisis that began last year. It hasn't stopped. Maketh, a father of five, relied on farming to provide for his family. They had cows, goats, chickens, as well as crops sown into the ground ready to harvest. But then the rains came and the floods got worse. Chances for cultivation became narrower each day. Now the area has become totally submerged in water. I lost everything. My home, my farm, my harvests, and even my livestock, said Maketh. Maketh was forced to evacuate his family from the area and sought refuge on higher ground. But he had nothing to provide for his family. Like many in other areas, they were now facing hunger. I moved my family to Bor. I remained here at Pakni Island to be able to do something to support them. My family is starving, he shares. The impact of the climate crisis is also putting women and girls at increased risk of abuse. The number of child marriages increases in years of drought. When families are desperate, they can get some money for the daughter and it's one less person to feed. We also see an increase in violence against women, especially domestic abuse, as the stress of the situation puts pressure on relationships. That is people who have been made in the image of God. So why is mercy important? Because these are people. Not just stories, you know, to pull on our heartstrings, but people who've been made in God's image. And what I love about this Good Samaritan is he doesn't, you know, shake the beaten up man on the road and go, you know, why were you going through this place by yourself? Do you know, why did you not take another route? He just loves. He just cares. He just shows mercy. Again, so often I think we need to try and justify why we be merciful. It's not our place to stop and, and try and, you know, ask questions and things like that. That's not what we see in the Good Samaritan. He just cares. Doesn't matter how he got in that place, doesn't matter what he did, didn't matter about his background, he just cared for him. Jesus shows us that mercy goes beyond feelings. It led the Samaritan to action, action that cost him, action that took him out of his way. Friends, there are children eating off of rubbish piles and plastic made from our waste here in the West. There are women being sold so families can generate some income so that they can feed the rest of their families because of failed crops. There are people walking miles every day just to get a drop of water. Jesus in verse 37, he's asked already the teacher, the lawyer, who showed mercy? Who was the neighbor? Verse 37, the one who showed mercy, the lawyer said, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
We need to be more than a people of word. We need to be a people of deed. Go and do likewise. We aren't just to feel compassion, but we are to show it. R.C. Sproul said that there's no such thing as a universal brotherhood, but there is such a thing as a universal neighborhood. Now, what does he mean by that? We are not all God's children. Okay? Sometimes when we pray, we, we're praying and we thank God for, you know, that we're all his children. That's not what scripture says. We've all been made in his image, but we're not all his children. We only become a child of God through adoption, through faith in Christ's atoning works. Yes, we've got brothers and sisters all over in the world, but not every single person is going to go to heaven. But what I love here is that what Jesus is teaching us is that the care and the compassion and mercy that is shown by the church, it has to and it must reach outside of the church because it is a global neighborhood. And that is what Jesus is speaking about here. Not everyone is your brother and sister in Christ, but everyone is your neighbor, regardless of where they come from, what they look like and what they believe in. They are your neighbor because they have been made in the image of God. And what we're called is to have mercy on them and show them the love of Jesus through word and through deed. Very briefly, we're going to look at one wee other verse from Micah chapter 6. Verses that have been um, used a lot over this last couple of days through our city and over our social media. Micah 6 verse 8. Verses, words that will be very familiar with us. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Remember I told you to park that thing about not being able to boast in your mind somewhere. We are to walk humbly with our God. God has told you what he wants, Micah says. He doesn't just want token gesture worship. He wants worship that comes from a transformed life. That actually the words that we're singing out loud, that actually we're practicing them in our day-to-day living. God wants us to do justice. Not just talk about it, not just offer empty prayers, but do it. Put it into action. Some translations here have loving kindness. um, And other translations would have the, the word, you know, love mercy. The word for loving kindness and, and, and mercy, they're, they're interchangeable in the Hebrew. It's the same, it comes from the same word. So here, we're still, being, we're still speaking about mercy. Although it says to love kindness, that kind of kindness is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, scriptures tell us. It's, it's that kind of covenant uh, love that God shows to his people. It's a beautiful word. We're to love kindness, loving kindness, love mercy. And how do we do justice? Do justice, Micah says. Well, I think he explains it in the ESV anyway, in the next 11 words. That is how we do justice. How do we do justice? We do it by loving kindness. And then by walking humbly with our God. Loving kindness or love mercy. And then walk humbly with our God. The calling isn't to be a people of empathy. Why? Because empathy stops at an internal emotion. The calling is to be a people of mercy. 
true mercy, which is always seen in external action. Justice cannot be achieved if we do not love mercy. And it cannot be achieved if we are proud. If we as God's children are beneficiaries of God's mercy, then we have to be a people who show mercy. We have to be people who act to others as God himself has acted towards us. To mirror Jesus, who stepped down, who set aside his glory and humbled himself and served in a self-giving way. He poured out everything he had. So four points we need to remember from the Good Samaritan about mercy. Firstly, mercy sees distress. Mercy sees distress. He saw him and he had compassion. Secondly, mercy responds with internal compassion. It sees it and it's moved by it. Thirdly, mercy goes beyond internal compassion and responds with action. He didn't just see him feel sorry and cross the road. He picked him up and tended to him. And then fourthly, and maybe most importantly, mercy sees beyond who the person is. Even if it's an enemy, we're to care and love and be there for them. Amen.